The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. Good morning, Parkwood. It's great to see you this morning. Extend my welcome to you as well as to those that are watching us online. Thank you for joining us for worship. Let's continue to do that through the study of God's Word, 2 Peter chapter 2 in your Bible. 2 Peter chapter 2. If you came in today and don't have a copy of the Scriptures, let me encourage you to reach into the rack there and think you'll find some in front of you. Find 2 Peter and then chapter 2. Be very transparent with you and tell you that I missed you last week. I've so enjoyed being here, but I, I haven't necessarily been looking forward to coming back and dealing with this text. We come to a place in Second Peter. I told you at the beginning of chapter two, the whole chapter was weighty, was heavy. There's no exhortation in this chapter. There's nothing we're told to do. It's filled with judgment, pronouncements of judgment, the false teachers. And I think in the second half of this chapter that we want to deal with this morning, beginning in the middle of verse 10, going through the end of the chapter, is just the, the, the culmination of that. It's the heart of that. I tried to think about you know, how to describe this, how to, to set this up. How many of you have ever seen an episode of the television show? It's uh, actually a, somewhat of a reality show uh, called Scared Straight. How many of you have seen some of those? Several of you. Scared Straight is actually a government program that began in the 1970s in an effort to... Um, hopefully redirect the paths of some at-risk teenagers. And so what they did was they began to take these teenagers who had gotten in trouble, maybe been arrested, given some indication that they were headed down a wrong path and take them into prisons and let the prisoners talk to them. And talk to them is a relative term. It's a mild term. Because if you've ever seen any of the episodes, it's a very in-your-face approach. It's a real program that they decided to televise. So this, this actually happened. So they let these prisoners get up in the face of these teenagers and yell at them, scream at them, uh, describe for them what goes on behind prison walls, what they themselves are going through what they would do to those teenagers if they end up showing up in that prison. And they do everything that they can to scare these teenagers straight. Well, to some degree, I think when we come to the second half of Second Peter, this is what he's doing. He, he is attempting, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, remember, to scare us straight when it comes to the realization of false teachers and the gravity of their presence, of their teaching in the midst of the people of God. And so 
Peter, he really addresses, I think, three major issues that characterize these, these false teachers in an effort to make sure that we are not ourselves headed down the path of embracing what they teach and to make sure that people we are responsible for, which is one another in the church of Christ, are not, not headed down that path as well. So here are the three big picture categories I want you to listen to. I think Peter talks about their, their, their depravity being extreme. They have an extreme depravity. Secondly, he's going to show us where their doctrine is empty. It's vain. There, there isn't any truth to it. And then finally, he's going to show us how their DNA is exposed. They are exposed for what they truly are. And I think there would be great advantage uh, in, in doing what we normally do, and that is read the entirety of the text of Scripture, especially here because I think there's benefit in just reading it and letting it, letting it settle in, letting it sink in. But I'm gonna encourage you, just for the sake of time, to do that at home. After we walk through this passage of scripture, find some time, maybe today, where you just go back and you read this from start to finish and let its gravity sink in. What I'm gonna do is uh, hopefully help us with that by just walking through this passage of scripture with you and commenting on these three, on these three big picture issues. Let's start with their depravity being extreme. Now, it, we, we, we live in a culture that where no longer does the status quo settle for the status quo, if you realize that. You know, the norm is, is not good enough anymore. And it, and it shows up in all kinds of ways. And, 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 and this is gonna be one of those places that I, I show you in this text of scripture where we may look at this and say, you know, I'm not a false teacher. We might even look at this in this church right now and say, I, I don't know any of these people. I don't know that we have any of these false teachers, but listen to me. Something I, I haven't necessarily called your attention to. What I want to show you in this passage of scripture is there are evidences where the characteristics of these false teachers have influenced our life. And maybe one of them is in this old issue of, you know, the status quo is, is not good enough anymore. I mean, you think about the manifestations of that. Uh, you know, we, we no longer are satisfied with just a normal size TV screen, right? So we got to have widescreen TV. Well, you know, we, we go to restaurants that have mega bars. At least I do. I don't know. Maybe I'm the only one. Because, you know, the normal portions that they bring you on a, on a regular plate are just not enough. We need piles of food out there. So we, we, we have mega bars. We, you know, we, we're not satisfied anymore with high-definition television. We've got ultra-high-definition now. And, 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 and we, we gravitate toward prefixes like hyper and, 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 and ultra. You know, the exhilaration and the risk of just normal sporting events is no longer good enough. So now we've got extreme sports, you know, where people are hanging off the side of a cliff with no ropes trying to, I, mean, I, I don't get that, but we've got extreme sports. So we are a culture 
that, that you know, maybe is characterized for you Trekkies of that original Star, ca Star Trek cast and, and, and mission when they said that they, they go where, no, boldly go where no man has gone before. And that seems like the order of the day. It seems like that's what we want to do. And, you know, that influences and has creeped into the church where there are, there are Christians who I, I think want to leverage the grace of God uh, by pushing the envelope. I know Christians that uh, because of grace, they say, they want to live as close to the line as they possibly can without stepping over. Push the envelope of, of grace because after all, we're forgiven. Well, I think when we come to 2 Peter chapter 2, especially beginning here in the, the middle of verse 10, Peter is saying, listen, the false teachers aren't concerned about the line. They're not concerned about getting as close as they can. They go over the line. There is an extreme depravity that they have. All of us are depraved. The Bible teaches us that we're, we're all sinners. We're all separated from God. Uh, we, we're born into sin. But, but, but these false teachers, Peter's saying, they take depravity to a new level. Plays out in a number of ways. The first one is that they have an audacious arrogance, bold and willful language of the New Testament. They boldly, uh, they're boldly willful in not trembling, but instead of blaspheming, he says, the glorious ones. Now, these glorious ones are likely a reference to angels, are likely reference to maybe even fallen angels or demonic forces. And what's Peter saying? Peter's saying these guys are so arrogant that they, that they engage these demonic forces and they, 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 they blaspheme them, they, they, they trash talk them, if you will, with no consideration of the danger of that. You say, well, is there a danger? Well, look at verse 11. Whereas, he says, angels, though greater in might and power, greater in might and power than who? Than the false teachers, than human beings. Now, now listen to me, church. So Paul tells us that the day is going to come where we, we actually rule over angels. I, I don't know what that's going to look like, but that is something that is coming in eternity. But right now, understand this, right now, the order is reversed. He very clearly says right here, though they're greater in might and power, I don't think he's making any distinction between good angels and bad angels. He's talking about angelic forces. He's talking about the spirit world. And he says, they do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment. Good angels don't even pass, uh, uh, pass a blasphemous judgment against bad angels before the Lord. You want to see a picture of this? Remember Jude has a parallel letter. One chapter, the book of Jude is, and it is, runs right alongside with Peter's theme. They, these two books help us interpret one another. Well, in, in Jude's book in verse nine, listen to what he says right here. When the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses. Now, I don't know what that argument was about over the body of Moses, but they were arguing over the body of Moses. It says, Michael, archangel, good angel, contending with the devil, obviously bad angel, was disputing about the body of Moses. He didn't presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. The, the, the Lord pronounced judgment on you. 
Do you understand what Jude's saying? He said when they were having this argument, Michael, the archangel, wouldn't even, wouldn't even rebuke Satan himself. There's something in the economy. Of, 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 and, 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 and Peter reaches in, he grabs that illustration, he brings it over here and he says, these false teachers don't even think twice about rebuking demonic forces. Now, 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 listen to me. Come in here real close. There's a place we have to press pause. We have to make sure that we, we see the influence of this that has crept into the church. I know Christians. I've heard it many times. The rhetoric of exercising spiritual weight as if we had this. I've heard believers say, well, I rebuke you, Satan. I, I want you to hear the word of the Lord. Michael, the archangel, wouldn't even do that. He wouldn't even go there. He left that up to the Lord and said, that's the Lord's doing. It's the Lord's business. I run across Christians all the time that want to throw their spiritual weight around and engage demonic forces as if, as if there was nothing going on that could have influence on their life. As if, as if they're not greater in might and power. These angels and the, these demonic forces are not greater in might and power. Now, maybe you never found yourself using that rhetoric, I rebuke you, Satan, or maybe you've heard someone say, I rebuke the spirit of jealousy or the, I rebuke the spirit of greed or whatever the case may be. Maybe, maybe that, that's not you. But listen, there is another side to this, and that is us not taking this very seriously. We may not want to go there with somebody who's, who's not taking it serious from the standpoint of engaging them, but some of the rest of us sometimes don't take demonic forces seriously as if there couldn't be any effect in our engagement with them. You say, engagement how? Well, you know, for a lot of us, a lot of us demonic, you know, demons are just something we either read in the gospels that Jesus dealt with or, listen to me, we use as entertainment. If you thought about the number of movies and television shows today that are themed with the paranormal, with demonic forces, video games, some of them. But you see, we just look at that as Hollywood. It's just a movie to watch. It's just a show to, you know, to engage and follow. It's just a video game to play as if below the surface, there wasn't some possibility of influence on our life from, from powers that are greater than us in these human bodies we have. Beloved, we, we, we need to understand the influence. We may look at this and we may say, oh, I'm not a false teacher. We may say, oh, I don't see any of these false teachers in our church, but think about the influence. Peter says they are audaciously arrogant in engaging demonic forces. Look at the result of that in verse 12. These like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage of their own wrongdoing. You know what he's doing? He's taking the, the illustration of an animal that, that follows its instinct. Is not thinking rationally like human beings, but is following its flesh. This is the reason we can trick them. This is the reason we can trap them. We can hunt them. We can kill them because they're following their flesh. And they're not, they're not following rational thinking about something. And Peter takes that and he says, he just flows and says, these are like that, he says. They're like these irrational allies. But then he just keeps talking about what they do, blaspheming about matters which they don't know anything about. 
talking specifically about the, 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 the spirit world and the engagement of demons. And so he, he brings to the surface their arrogance as well as their end. They will also, just like an animal that gets trapped and killed, will be destroyed in their destruction. Not just audacious arrogance, but limitless lust. Their lust has no limits. Look at the descriptions beginning in the middle of verse 13. Peter just gives us, under the inspiration of the Spirit, a a few sentences of description, each of them telling something about how their their lust has has no boundaries. The first one, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. So so these are individuals who partying all night is not enough. They got to start in the afternoon and get ramp up to this or they, they, they extend it into the morning. Now, let me tell you what's happening here. Peter is not contrasting these party animals with the average Christian in the church. He is contrasting these party animals with the lost culture that they live in. This is his point right here. He says even lost people... Most lost people get up and go to work every morning. Most lost people will finish the day. They may party at night, but they're going to finish the day. Not these false teachers, he says. Their depravity is extreme, and it shows up in the fact that their lust and their revelry and their licentiousness has no limits. They've got to they do it in the daytime as well as night. This is kind of like you know, Paul in 1 Corinthians 5. You know, he, he writes to the Corinthians and he says, you, you know, there's something going on among you that doesn't even happen in the pagan culture. He says, you got a guy in your midst that's having an affair with his stepmother. He says, lost people don't even do that. Pagan culture doesn't even accept that. But you're doing it, Paul says. This is what Peter says about the false teachers. He says this, this stuff is not even characteristic of, 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 of the lost world in, in general. So they count it pleasure to party in the daytime as well as at night. Look at the next one. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions. Some manuscripts actually have the words uh, love feast right here. And you say, well, gosh, that, that kind of, it's a different word. Some manuscripts, it's not a, a, an angle on the same word. But, but the reason that that it has some validity to it is because Jude, and I'll, I'll not take you over there, but Jude is talking about this. He actually uses the words love feast. And, and, and so he says they're blots and blemishes. They're reveling, they're partying, partying during the love feast. Love feasts, listen to me, were in this day were something that was accompanied with communion, with the Lord's Supper. And, and, and that's why he says, while they feast with you, what they would do is they would have basically a dinner on the grounds, if you will, but it was, it was not just to get together and fellowship. It was actually part of the communion ceremony. It would lead into the taking of communion. They would eat this as a, as a recognition of their unity with one another as the body of Christ and doing life together. But, but oftentimes that got corrupted. That's when Paul addresses it in 1 Corinthians 11. It says that a lot of you are coming in and you're trying to get up to the front of the line because all you're thinking about is the food. And, and, and some of you are, are getting drunk during that time, just making a party out of it. This is what Peter's talking about right here. He says, this is what these guys are, are doing. They, they revel in the love feast while they feast with you. But I want you to notice, he says, they're blots and blemishes. Why? Because it was affecting the testimony of the church. 
It was affecting the testimony of the church. Paul was rebuking the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5 for letting it go on for this very reason and as well as other. Peter comes with the same thing and he says they're, 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 they're affecting your testimony. They're blots and blemishes on the testimony of the gospel. Then look at verse 14. Here's another statement. They have eyes full of adultery. Now, now this, this could mean that they were, they were lusting after prostitutes, but more than likely is simply talking about the way that they looked at every, uh, every woman in the church. They would look at every woman in the church as a candidate for infidelity, thinking, fantasizing about, uh, uh, about committing adultery with that, luring that woman into committing adultery. This is, this is the way they, they viewed these women in the church. But notice what he says, how he describes it. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. You know what he's talking about there? He says they're, they're driven by this. It can't, it, it, it's something, it's a desire that can't be satisfied. It can't be filled up. So they just keep going, looking for satisfaction in it. The implication is this is something they open the door for that now has its grip on them to the point that it seems natural. That this is just what you think. This is just the way you, you look at women. Now, beloved, listen, once again, let me, let, me, let me call your attention to an influence here. Again, we might look here and we might say, oh, I'm not a false teacher. Or we might look and say, I don't know any false teachers in our church or anything, but I want you to think about the influence of this and how the same thing is true for each and every one of us that are believers in Jesus Christ. If we open a door and we leave that door open, with something that we continue to do and we practice, sooner or later, it is going to get, sometimes sooner, sometimes later, it's gonna get its claws in us. And as Christians, it's so easy to think, well, you know what, I, it, here's the whole of my life and man, you know, 99% of it is good, it's godly. So this one little area over here, you know, no big deal. And so we open our lives to that area there, not realizing that this principle is part of the economy of sin. And that's something we open the door to that eventually will become a practice, eventually seems like the norm, it seems like natural, and we justify it as part of our Christian life. Now listen, we're real good at, 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 at thinking that when we're talking about stuff like this, we're talking about just adultery, or, or premarital sex, or we're talking about homosexuality, or we're talking about some of those biggies. Let me tell you something. This same thing happens with greed. It happens with, with uh, uh, gluttony, us eating too much. It's, it happens with gossip. And on and on we could go. Any sin, anything, anything we open the door for, we justify and let it hang around, eventually gets its claws in us and we would be categorized by the same way. We're insatiable for sin. We keep looking for satisfaction in it and it won't go away. And when that happens, a stronghold develops and it's not as easy when strongholds, it's not as easy as saying, oh, I'm sorry. It's not as easy as even saying, oh Lord, would you forgive me? It's not as easy as, as saying, I just don't want to do this anymore because it's got its claws in you. You say, Jim, is there, is there any hope when I'm in that situation? There is. There's always hope in the gospel. There's always hope in the power of Christ in you. But, it, but it's something that has to be torn down, I think, with spiritual warfare that we've got to attack with truth. We've got to attack with prayer. I think we've got to, got to bring other people into it. 
And you may be here this morning as a believer in Christ and you, you know exactly what I'm talking about because you've got something in your life that you opened the door for, you've justified it, and now it just seems natural. It's part of your life and you can't shake it. You've tried. Let me encourage you. Let me encourage you. Bring some people you trust into that journey and let them pray for you. Let them pray with you. Let them commit to you to pray for you. Memorize scripture. Feed your mind with truth. Get some accountability in your life. Do something, but don't let that sin go unaddressed in your life. You see, it's just another place that their influence affects our lives. Notice another statement. It's really the last one about their limitless lust. Their, Their eyes are full of adultery in verse 14. They entice unsteady souls. They entice unsteady souls. The word entice is a word, it's a fishing term. Some of you are fishermen. And you know what a lure is. It's synthetic bait. It's, it's something that's made to look like the real thing. Why? Because you want to trick the fish into thinking that it's, you know, it's something that they want. Why? Because the fish is driven by, it's, it's, it's natural, it's, you know, it's nature and it's following its flesh. And so you, you use the lure and, and, and you hook the fish and bringing in. That's what Peter is using to describe what these guys do. They, he says, they don't want to be alone in this. And we need to understand this about false teachers. They don't want to be alone in their journey. And so their mission is, is to do this, to trick, notice, unsteady soul. Souls that are not rooted and grounded in the gospel, in their faith. You get home today, another thing you ought to thank God for is your, your leadership, the pastor that you have. I know you do this. Let me encourage you to keep doing it. Thank God for the staff that you have. Thank God for men that keep telling you the same thing. Thank God for leaders who, who, who give you the word and encourage you to embrace the word, challenge you to learn it and know it and not just be a spectator, but become ingrained in the gospel and it in, ingraining you. Why? Because unsteady souls are the target of false teachers. And all of us know, every one of us knows somebody. We know somebody that maybe in our family, maybe in our small group, somebody that, that, that came out of the great running, they, they, they are a believer or profess to be a believer and then something along the way they bought into, they grabbed a hold of it and it's, 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 it's reeled them in to a tangent, maybe even not even being part of a community of faith like this anymore. And, and, and listen, this, this passage of scripture is something that ought to say to us, we gotta be on guard for that. Not just you, you may be grounded in the truth, but listen, if you are, you have a responsibility. I have a responsibility of keeping our eyes open to protect those that, 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 that are unsteady, that aren't ingra- ingrained in the gospel. And, and we need to do everything we can to help them be ingrained because this is part of the limitless lust of these false teachers. So audacious arrogance, limitless lust. Notice greedy gain is another way their extreme depravity shows up. Look in the middle of verse 14. They have hearts trained in greed. Language of the New Testament, the word trained is a word from which we get our word gymnasium. Listen to this. These guys work out for this. It's not just something they grabbed along the way or not just something they brought into this naturally. They, they discipline themselves and they work on this. 
Their hearts are, 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 their muscles of their heart are trained in this direction. And, and they're, you know, we've already seen this. You remember back up in verse three, in their greed, they'll exploit you with false words. This is, this is when it begins to influence others in, in the church. They want to exploit you. They want to take your money. They want you to support their work and their ministry and their lives and their licentiousness and their eyes full of adultery and all of that kind of thing. But, but Peter says here, they, they work out for this. Now, once again, let's press pause and admit we might look at this and say, well, I'm not a false teacher. I don't know any false teachers in the church, but would you agree with me that this kind of heart for greed has influenced us in the church of Christ today, especially in the Western world, in a materialistic culture, to the point that many of us as believers in Christ think the most important thing in our lives is to advance our career, especially if it means climbing the ladder of more money. And so we think nothing about choosing a job, accepting a job in another city because the paycheck is higher without any consideration of whether it's best for our family or maybe even more importantly, whether it positions us to be able to, to, to advance the gospel more. We, we, we plan for retirement because we want to have a nest egg so that we can live in pleasure as opposed to looking at retirement as a season where we have more flexibility and being able to leverage everything we have for the sake of the gospel. You see, that, that right in and of itself probably sounds, some, sounds w weird to some of us. You know, what do you mean retirement? Man, I look for retirement so I don't have to work anymore. As opposed to, I work for retirement because I look forward to a season that I'll be able to advance the gospel in even greater ways than I'm doing now. Not just sitting around. You see, you, do you see how this mentality influences our lives? We begin to think the same way the world does about the money that we have and the careers that we have and the retirement that we have waiting for us. This influences us. This is why Peter's saying, be on guard with it. Accursed children, he says, forsaking the right way. They've gone astray. And then he illustrates this. He parallels them to... To, to Balaam and his donkey in the Old Testament in Numbers 22 through 24. I mean, you know the story. He says, they followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain for wrongdoing. Balaam was a prophet of God and he sold out for money. Balak wanted him to prophesy certain things and he paid him to do that. This was a prophet of God. And the way it all came to the surface is he was riding a donkey and an angel appeared but only the donkey saw it. Balaam didn't. And so the donkey turned aside and, and actually mashed Balaam up against the wall, his foot up against the wall. So he slaps the donkey. He, he whips him and the donkey turns around and speaks to it. And Peter is using that illustration as an indication that even a speechless donkey, look at it, was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. He, he says, even a speechless donkey, an animal, had more sense than this blind prophet. Why? Because of greed. Because greed had clouded his thinking. It had blinded him to reality. So these guys have a depravity that is extreme. But then Peter talks about their doctrine being empty. 
I think I've mentioned to you before my fascination with the way some of you young men are now proposing to your fiancés. Just, you know, there's just all kinds of things that, you know, money that's being spent to hire photographers to hide in trees and, and you know, just do all kinds of fanfare. And, and, and listen, I'm not saying there's anything wrong. That's why I say I'm fascinated. Why. We weren't that resourceful in my day. Uh, we weren't that smart to think about being able to, you know, to do that. I proposed to my wife in the front seat of a 67 Camaro sitting in the Atlanta airport parking lot. How romantic is that, huh? So she came in town one time to see me. It was on the back end, thank goodness, of a six-year on and off, long-distance relationship. And listen to me, just as a side note, I don't recommend any of those to anybody, all right? She came in town. We talked about it. She knew it was coming. I decided to have a little fun with it. I took the ring box. I set it on the console, but I took the ring out of it. Picked her up inside at the airport, brought her out. She got into the car. She saw that box on the console and her eyes lit up. She reached down and grabbed it, said, is this for me? Said, yes, it is. Open it. She opened it up. There was nothing in it. <laughs> Terrible. And I'm sinister. I know. <laughs> I held up the ring. I had it in my hand. I asked her to be my wife and the rest is history. You say, what in the world does that have to do with this? Listen. It's one thing to do that in fun and jest. But the false teachers, Peter says, are holding up an empty ring box. You see, a ring box ought to incite desire as it does. There's something in it that a young woman wants and, and everything about the box says that that is in there. It, it may be the jeweler's logo, the decor on the box, the, the shape of the box or something, the size of the box. Everything says what you want is in here. And Peter says that's exactly what the false teachers do, except they, they give you an empty box. Plays out two particular ways. One, the presentation of showy speech. Verse 17, he says that they're waterless springs and they're mist driven by storms. He starts off with two metaphors and his metaphors are of a well that is dry, doesn't have any, any water in it, and a cloud that doesn't have any rain in it. That's what he's describing right there. Some of you grew up on well water. You might still live in a place where you get your water from well. It's the way I grew up, and I, I understand a little bit about that. But I know for a traveler, a traveler in this day that had come a long way and saw a well, he would desire what's supposed to be in that well. He would want it only to find it empty. A farmer would long to have a cloud that gives rain, but he sees one and the wind blows it before it drops any rain. There's something in that cloud, about that cloud, that we want, we want to have. And Peter says this is exactly what false teachers do. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. This is another statement of judgment. You just see, just peppered throughout this. He talks about, he gives illustration, and every once in a while he says, this is their end. This is where they're headed. And here's one of those places. It's not just darkness, but utter darkness, it says. In verse 18, he shows us what the box looks like. For speaking loud boast of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. You see what he says? He says they make a lot of noise. They say a lot of stuff. 
They, 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 they engage in a lot of hoopla. There's a, there's a lot of stuff on the surface that causes people to look and say, I want what's inside the box. And Peter says, he says that it's loud boast of folly. Do you see it? It's foolishness. It's empty. There's nothing in it. But because of what's on the outside, because of what the box looks like, because of their loud boast, he says, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh. And this is interesting. Those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. You know what he's talking about? I think he's talking about new Christians. In just a little bit, we're going to have the privilege of observing a baptism. This is something you do as a church and you celebrate that. Somebody coming to faith in Christ. It's a new believer. Yesterday, I got my fifth grandchild. My daughter had a baby. It would be completely ridiculous for them to, to FaceTime me and, and my wife and show the baby and celebrate with that, but then them set the baby aside and say, all right, did that, let's go on, Had, you know, and, and do the rest of life and leave that baby to fend for itself. Totally ridiculous, but it happens all the time in churches. We celebrate the conversion. We celebrate the new birth. We celebrate people coming to faith, but sometimes we forget about them. And we just assume now we're gonna all go through life together and they're with us and we're with them without thinking about the fact that they are targets, listen to me, targets for false teachers. Intentional targets. This book of 2 Peter is telling us and this is what false teachers do. They present the box out there to young believers, but there's nothing in the box, but they lure them away with what the box looks like. Not just showy speech, but they promise false freedom. Look at verse 19. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. And he gives a proverb for whatever overcomes a person to that he is enslaved. Talking about the same thing about, you see what these are? They're holding out the box, the false teachers, and they're saying, come get freedom. And don't listen to the rest of these, these Christians, these people that are saying, man, we need to live godly lives. We don't, we, we don't have eyes full of adultery and we don't have the freedom just to do everything our flesh wants us to do. You understand it's the way the world looks at us and they say, well, that's it. guys, you Christians, y'all don't have any fun. You, you do all this stuff. You got these rules that you think you follow and you think you're supposed to do. You are bound up. I mean, get a life, they say. Come be free. Live your life like you want to live it. Don't be in bondage to anybody. That's what he's saying the false teachers are saying. When in fact, look at it, they are themselves slaves of corruption because they've given themselves to licentiousness. They've given themselves to, to lust. They've given themselves to greed. They've given themselves to arrogance. And it's got a hold of them now and they're slaves to it. So here's what you got. You got a bunch of slaves standing up telling everybody else, come be free. Makes no sense, Peter says. They promise false freedom. Now, before we leave this doctrine, this empty doctrine thing, let me remind you about the contrast of the gospel. Jesus said to the woman at the well, everyone who drinks of this water, the well water, will be thirsty again. That, that water, that well even had water in it. But he said, drink this and you're still going to be thirsty. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. 
The water that I'll give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life, he says. And a little bit later in John 7, Jesus is in the temple and he stands up and he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Beloved, listen, if you're here without Christ today, I want you to hear Jesus' invitation. He's the only one that can satisfy you. He's the only one that can quench your thirst. There may be promises of freedom out there that you are tempted to follow and you may follow, but it will never satisfy. It will never quench your thirst. There is a void in every single one of us that can only be satisfied with the water of eternal life that comes through Jesus. What about slavery? Do you remember what Jesus said in John 8? You'll know the truth and the truth will do what? It'll set you free, right? A little bit later, he says, whoever the son sets free, he will be free indeed. He will be really free. You got both of these things, the quenching of thirst and and the freedom from the slavery to sin that can only be found in Jesus Christ. If you're here without Christ today, I invite you to repent of your sins and place your faith in him. Come to this well and drink. Come to him and drink. Come to him and get freedom. The only freedom that is real freedom. Pray you give your life to Christ today. So Peter finally comes to their DNA being exposed, beginning in verse 20. Their depravity is extreme. Their doctrine is empty. But he says their DNA is exposed. You know what DNA is? It's that heritage material that all of us have found in just about every cell in our body, the same DNA. And yet our DNA is different from every person that's ever lived on the planet and ever will live. It could only be a God thing, by the way. I don't know how anybody looks at this idea of DNA and not see God in, in this. What an incredible thing. It's used to solve crimes, certainly. Used to help us discover our heritage and so many other things. But you see, spiritual DNA is different. We've all got the same spiritual DNA. And that is we are born into sin. And Peter comes to this place right here and he says, that reality that, that, you know, when you become a Christian, your DNA is replaced with Christ's righteous DNA. But of a lost person, an unbeliever keeps their same DNA. And Peter says that DNA is ultimately exposed. He gives, makes a presumption, then he gives a principle, gives a proverb to close. The principle is these guys think they're saved. He says, if in verse 20, after they've escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. In other words, they go back to what they started with. Some have come to this text, this verse and said, oh, so you can lose your salvation. I mean, after all, they have a knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that word knowledge is talking about a full knowledge. So they had that, but then they lost it and they went back to their old lifestyle. It's not what he's saying. He would be contradicting himself. Peter would in both his first letter, his second letter, as well as the rest of the New Testament. What he's doing is he's using language the community of faith is familiar with because these people are still in the community of faith. It would be like I was coming to you and I'm saying, you know, this brother over here or this, you know, this guy is, you know, that's been a part of our church. You know, he accepted Christ at one time. Or I say he made a profession of faith. All of those terms are terms that you're familiar with and you and I immediately associate them with someone who is genuinely saved. But none of them 
none of them verify that a person is saved. None of them indicate that this person is truly saved. This is why we have to be careful to make sure that we unpack phrases like accepting Jesus into your heart, what it means to walk an aisle, even to be baptized, to, to, to make a profession of faith. Because just because you do some of those things doesn't mean it's authentic. And this is what he's describing here. These guys understood the gospel. They understood it. They got it. It made sense, but then they walked away from it. They said no to it. It was an indication that they didn't endure, which by the way is what the New Testament says is really the only indicator of true salvation. I mean, I can sit here and tell you that I'm saved, but ultimately you, you, you don't know if I'm saved. The only thing that's gonna tell you I'm saved is if I endure. And same with me, me with you. This is why and it, Jesus gave the parable of the sower and two of those uh, kinds of ground, the seed fell on thorny ground and rocky ground. They, they gave evidence at first that there was gonna be life, but, but then it was gone. This is why Jesus said in Matthew 10, he who endures to the end shall be saved. If you're saved, you will endure. If you endure, you're saved. It's what the New Testament said. John said it in his first epistle in chapter two, talking about some people that had, had, had left the church. He said, they went out from us, why? Because they were not of us. And then he said, if they had been of us, they would not have left us. In other words, their, their end indicated whether it was real or not. So these, there's a presumption here that these guys have made that they're really say. The principle middle of verse 20, the last state has become worse for them than the first. It would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Let me tell you what he's describing. He's describing a reality, a reality that when someone comes and they really get the gospel, they know it, they understand it. They, 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 they can see it for what it is and then they reject it. He's saying it hardens the heart. And it becomes far more difficult for a person in that situation to ever come back and say yes to the gospel, if not impossible. This is related to the unpardonable sin that Jesus talked about. When somebody attributes to Satan what is of God, or they attribute to as evil what God has determined as good, it does something to the heart. That's the principle that's been at play in these guys' life. And then he finishes with a proverb a proverb that actually confirms that these guys were never saved in the first place. And you go back up there to verse 20 and say, oh, that looks like you can lose your salvation. You get down to verse 22, no way. Why? What does he say? What, what the true tr proverb says has happened to them. The dog refer, returns to its vomit and the sow, the pig, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. What's the common denominator? The two animals went back to their nature. Happened in my house this week. My dog threw up on the carpet. And then he goes over there and he wants to eat it. Why does the dog do that? Why does the dog want to eat the thing that made him sick? Because that's the nature of a dog. That's why a pig, after getting a bath, would go back and jump back in the mud. Because that's the nature of a pig. What is Peter saying? He's saying, these guys have revealed their true nature. He never said that they're Christians and then they lost their salvation. He says their spiritual DNA is exposed. It's made known to everyone. What does Peter want to do here? He wants us to be aware of reality. That's what Scared Straight is built on, a concept that awareness influences reform. 
And he wants the church of Jesus Christ to be reformed to the place that we resolve. This will never happen to me. I will keep my guard up that we will resolve. We will not let it happen to new believers in our midst. We will not let them become prey to false teachers. We will give ourselves to godliness as it's reflected in the person of Christ and these influences, even if we're not false teachers or we have false teachers in our midst, that we guard ourselves against all of the influences. I don't know what God would do with a message like this, but I know it's his word. And I know that he wants to make us a people who never, ever succumb to false teaching. I want to ask you to pray with me. Thank you for your patience this morning. I knew this text was long and I knew it was weighty. As we, as we pray and as and we sing and we respond, I just invite you as believers to resolve with me afresh that we'll keep our guard up. Resolve afresh that we will watch over new believers in our midst, in our homes and in our church. That we would resolve afresh not to be influenced by the teaching and the ideas and the themes of false teaching. If you're here today without Christ, I plead with you, I invite you to make this your spiritual birthday. Come and drink from the well of living water. Come and be set free in the bondage of sin. Trust Jesus today. If that's what your heart is telling you, then when we stand and sing in a moment, I want to invite you to leave your seat. Come down here. There'll be pastors standing here at the front and just let them know that. Let them know that you're trusting Christ today. You want to follow him. Or maybe you've got questions. Come, come and ask your questions to them and let them help you clarify the gospel and know what God wants to do. God, give us grace for this. As believers, give us grace, Lord, to never let our guard down. I pray you would give boldness and courage to people who've never trusted Christ that today would be the day they say yes to the living water right now. We pray your spirit will move in this room. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.